Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. I'm Kate Spencer. And I'm Dori Shafrir. And we are not experts. We're not. We're two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. And you can visit our website, Forever 35 Podcast, for links to everything we mentioned on the show and find us on Instagram at Forever 35 Podcast. In the Forever 35 Facebook group world, where the password is serums, you can find products we love at shopmy.us slash forever35. And you can sign up for our newsletter at forever35podcast.com slash newsletter. And if you would like to reach us, we have a voicemail and text number at 781-591-0390. And our email is forever35podcast at gmail.com. We are doing a live show. Oh, yeah, we are. That is happening on... Wednesday, May 17th, May 17th at 5.30 p.m. Pacific, 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Link in the show notes to buy tickets. It's it's moment.co slash forever35, I believe. And days before that, we are playing in the Bitch Sesh Deep Dive Pickleball Tournament oh, here yeah. in Los Angeles, California on Saturday, May 13th. We'll link to tickets for that if you want to come watch Dory and me play pickleball on the same team. On the same team. Together. Together. And we have a code for 15% off. It's Kate slash Dory. We'd love to see you there. <laughs> if, you, if you are a listener who comes to this pickleball tournament, please say hi. Please say hi. Please let us know who you are and cheer for us. Please We're going to need it. <laughs> I don't know. Dory and I played today and Dory was fantastic. So <laughs> you're being modest. You're really good. For Thanks. the first time you've ever played. Okay. Okay. Incredible. Thanks. All right. I will take the compliment. Take it. Thank you. Um, you know, Dory, should we seriously just hop right into our interview? I think we should. We had the absolute pleasure of talking to Virginia Soul Smith. We're sure you know her as the writer and podcaster behind Burnt Toast, an incredible newsletter. Um, she's also the author and I should say, excuse me, an incredible anti-diet newsletter and podcast. That we have by the same name, name checked on, the pod, on our podcast many times. Too many times to count. And she's also the author of a new book. It's called Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture that is out, just came out. 
Um, her previous book is The Eating Instinct, Food, Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. Her reporting on diet culture, health, and parenting has been in everything from the New York Times to Scientific American. Um, she's really a thought leader in the anti-diet space. Yeah. And that's a great way of putting it. Thank you. Um, we've wanted to talk to her for a very long time and we chatted with her for, for a while. So I think we just want to bring you our whole conversation today because we got so much out of it and out of her book. So we're just launching right into it. Let's do that. Without further ado, here is our conversation with Virginia. Great. Oh boy, Virginia. Welcome to the pod. Um, this is very exciting. I just want you to know that I just bragged about getting to interview you to a friend over text message a few moments ago. So thank you for the bragging I rights. feel very honored. Yeah, very honored I was like, to be hey, text brag worthy. Yeah, you are text brag worthy. <laughs> we both it. wanted to interview you for so long. And we were like, well, she has a book coming out. We should wait till the book is out. And now the book is out. Yay. Yay, which is so exciting. Congratulations. It's like truly a, a huge accomplishment. It's so great. Um, I know I'm going to be talking about it for so long. So thank you for writing. Oh, it. yeah. Oh, I already you. posted it in a parenting Facebook group. With <gasps> the suggestion to read it. I love you. Thank you so much. Um, well, Kate, should we just like get into it? Let's just start. Let's just start and okay. let's never stop. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Well, look, at every at every beginning of our, our show, we ask our guests about a self-care practice they have in their life. Now, this can literally be anything, as I think we all kind of understand the umbrella of self-care to be. Do you have something, Virginia, that is like meaningful to you as a, a, a practice of self-care? I was thinking about that. I have a couple. The one that I has been like the most useful to me, but that is currently under siege a little bit and I'm, I'm reworking to maintain it is I realized early on in parenting that I loved my children more if I woke up before them and had like some time to myself mm. to like, just do Wordle or read mm -hmm. or like not be touched or talked to by anyone. Um, and this has worked really well. Like I was a real stickler for, I call it reverse sleep training, where I would like <laughs> make all these rules that they couldn't leave their rooms um, and was really strict about it to preserve like I could get up an hour before that. I also don't have super early risers. So everyone who has like a 5 a.m. riser, mm, this yes. is obviously not for you. <laughs> um, not a doable strategy. Um and it worked really great. And now my kids suddenly decided to share a room and now they're both getting up earlier and it's falling apart. And I'm just really recognizing how much it's like, I, 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 was, I had started to take it for granted, you know, it was like yes. so great. And now it's a little bit gone and I'm like, okay, we got to, it's time to uh, lock down some stuff again. So yeah, that is my self-care practice. That is currently a work in progress. I love that. If it works for folks that early morning time of yeah. just like alone to do yeah. whatever you want, it's similar to the kind of, um, and I'm forgetting the name of it, but 
the staying up late and scrolling time that yes. we also have. That revenge, is- yes. bedtime revenge procrastination. Bedtime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like a version of that. And sometimes it is just phone scrolling first thing in the morning. You know, that's yeah. all. It's like coffee and phone scrolling and that's all I've got. Um, I mean, the best version of it is like now that it's spring and getting into summer, I go out into my garden and I like sit outside with my coffee and like, you know, do that. Oh, and that might be the solution is if I leave the house, I can't hear them if they get up and they have to fend. We might have just solved it, guys. We might <laughs> have just solved it. That's what we're Go us. Yep. You know, I, was okay. just, I was just going to say, I feel like, Kate, you have you have periodically posted early morning Instagrams or just wherever on social media of like, I'm enjoying my coffee and it's like 6 a.m. and you're outside yeah. and I'm always envious of that. And I usually see them when I'm awake, but just like lying in bed and not feeling motivated to get out of bed. So I applaud anyone who is able to actually like get out of bed before they absolutely have to, which I've pretty much never been able to do. So I mean, it's definitely like you're either wired this way or you're not. I can barely yeah. stay awake past 830 at night. So, you know, like I... That's that's oh, the I downside mean, of it. I was in bed at nine. <laughs> it's like on both ends. <laughs> but I just don't ever want to leave bed. Valid. Right. Yes, valid. Exactly. Also self-care. So that's yeah. fair. Yeah. I feel like not leaving bed is a really valid, really great wonderful self-care. choice. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. All right. Thank yeah. you both. Thank you both. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not get it twisted here. Uh, <sighs> So let's hop into it because, you know, your newsletter has been such a pivotal part of my own understanding of diet culture. And now your book, which I devoured yesterday. We, we name your newsletter like all the time on this podcast. Yes. So yes. nice. I always, I always like, like, oh, guys, thank you. Like, no, it's, it's just from people. It's very exciting. It's nonstop. So I, I would love to just start if you could kind of give our listeners a bit of a background about your kind of professional and personal journey into this area um, and and covering diet culture. I know you are a journalist, but like, when did that become your, your focus? Um, and was it intentional? Or was it something that you just kind of found yourself coming to again and again? A little bit of both. So I started my career in women's magazines. So I was very much a creator of diet culture. I was a health and nutrition journalist. Um, and so it was a lot, and this was like early 2000s. So it was a lot of portion control and, um, you know, sugar phobia stuff and low carb. And then also all the like, well, like early wellness culture stuff. So like Michael Pollan and eating organic and quinoa and, you know, all the whole grains, all of that. Why olive, olive oil is fine, but not trans fat, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, I was doing that. And I was sort of wrestling with, it was a very messy time. On the one hand, I really identified as a feminist. I didn't think that we should have to pursue thinness and hotness as this like, you know, cost of being a woman in particular in society. And yet I was very much in my own struggle of feeling like if I can just find, you know, there's got to be like a diet where it's like not really a diet and it's this Mm. lovely, easy way Mm. to eat. And it's very aspirational. And you go to the farmer's market a lot and that's just fun. So you're not dieting. It's fine. It's a date, you know, Um, this sort of version of it that I was looking for and that would feel good for my politics and my just, you know, the whole sort of aspirational image I had of myself And yet, you know, also regularly like diving headfirst into a box of Cheez-Its and feeling like, oh, wait, it's all falling apart. (laughs) And so I, you know, I was just kind of like 
in this messy place with that. Um, doing these articles, not feeling great about these articles, hearing from readers about how they made them feel not great. Just like, this is the cycle that we're in. And I started to learn more about concepts, which we can definitely get into more specifics of concepts like health at every size, um, the concept of diet culture, intuitive eating. These things were on my radar and I would sort of like go, you know, do one story on them. And then the next week do a story on, you know, like why you shouldn't eat sugar. Like it was very back and forth. And then the big turning point, which is a little bit cliche because I feel like motherhood is so often this turning point and, you know, it shouldn't have taken motherhood, but it did, um, was my daughter was born in 2013 and she was born with a rare congenital heart condition. We spent three years in this medical odyssey of multiple surgeries and, you know, just really pulled out of our regular lives into this whole other experience. And one of the things that happened during that time was that she stopped eating and was dependent on a feeding tube. And it helped me understand just how much I was defining myself, myself as a mother, her, like the whole thing. I was grading on what eating looked like and whether we were getting it right. And I had this whole vision of myself as a mother who would, of course, exclusively breastfeed and make my own baby food and be, you know, have a kid who was a perfect eater. You know, I can remember being like, my child will never use children's menus at restaurants. Like, what? <laughs> like, hilarious now. Hilarious. <laughs> anyway, um, so... But we're forced completely outside of that paradigm, right? Because like, forget children's menus. Like, She's not putting anything in her mouth. She's on a feeding tube. We're trying to figure out how to make food feel safe for her. Mm -hmm. And I realized we had to throw all of the rules out. We had to completely reject this idea that there would be an external set of rules that would teach us how to do this. We had to figure it out, like me and her together. And so that led to my first book, The Eating Instinct, which explores how diet culture, how are all of our relationships with food are so informed by diet culture, which is all of these messages about perfect eating and thinness. And then in writing that book, that got me sort of more firmly on the path of understanding the role of weight in this whole conversation. And so ever since then, I've been, yeah, now really reporting on diet culture from the outside and really critiquing it and reckoning with it and understanding that dealing with anti-fat bias is really the foundation of the whole conversation. Oof. Yeah. Um, it, it's been, I mean, for me, per, it's hard, it's hard for me to talk about this without talking about me personally. So I'm going to talk about myself for a second, but I know kind of like unlearning all of the stuff that we were taught, whether implicitly or explicitly is such a big part of this journey. But then as I think you say in your book, like the unlearning is kind of the first step. Right. Um, so can you talk a little bit about like, what is the next step in this journey for me, for you, for everyone? Well, so I think most of us, especially those of us with varying types of privilege, white privilege, thin privilege, et cetera, most of us start at this with dieting, right? Because that's the thing you learn to do. It's the thing that's sort of been weaponized against you really dramatically in one way or another. And so most people come to this conversation with the sense of, I don't want to diet anymore, or I don't want my kids to diet, but I don't know what else to do. And so we start by working on the personal. And that completely makes sense because that's the harm that's most apparent to you. That's the thing that, you know, is sort of like looming largest in your own life. And also 
it's what diet culture has taught us to do, to make this a personal mm. self-improvement project. That's how we mm. think of bodies is a personal self-improvement <clears throat> project. And so it's not that it's not valuable to work on our own issues. Like I have certainly benefited personally from doing this work in a thousand different ways. Like it's really great to get to a freer place with food and weight, 100%. But if we stop there, we're ignoring the fact that all of this is actually a systemic form of oppression and that it harms the people who are the most marginalized the most. So the fatter you are, the more anti-fat bias you're experiencing. And the thinner you are, not only are you experiencing less bias, but you're likely perpetrating the bias in ways that you can't entirely see. And so that's why we have to kind of do more than just sort out our own personal issues. Yeah, you talk about the intersection of fat phobia and anti-Black racism and the ways in which fat phobia is so deeply rooted in white supremacy, um, which is, this is such an important connection um, that I think, I know personally, like I, I've often overlooked. Can you kind of dig into this a little bit for our listeners? Absolutely. Um, and I would first say, you know, there are lots of scholars who have done this work who I yes. should reference. You know, I did not discover this and connection. You, you do in the um, book too. Yes. Yeah. So Sabrina Strings, Fury in the Black Body, Deshaun Harrison, Belly of the Beast. Those are my two go-tos for Black scholars who have really like nailed down this connection. But what their work really shows is that modern diet culture as we know it really has its roots in the United States in the end of slavery. And what happened then is, you know, Black people achieved rights that we hadn't given them before. And so in order to shore up white supremacy, in order to maintain the hierarchy of power, white culture began to really celebrate the thin white body and demonize and other even more so rounder, larger, black, darker bodies. And mm -hmm. so all of the sort of the beauty ideals that we most celebrate in this culture have to do with with playing into that, with with maintaining white supremacy. And just recognizing that, I think is, you know, it can take people a minute, I understand. But I also think it's really liberating because it just makes it so cut and dried. Like, okay, I don't I don't want to uphold white supremacy. I'm I'm working pretty hard to not do that a lot of the time. I mean, I recognize we all do, but like I'm I'm interested in divesting. So if that means don't reload Noom on my phone, like, okay, great. <laughs> you know, like that can be a very concrete motivation for stepping back from some of this stuff. And you start to see it too. I mean, you see it in the way different celebrities get treated, like the way we talk about Gwyneth Paltrow versus the way we talk about Lizzo. Like, you know, it's pretty clear the racial overtones in the way we think about bodies. Um, and yeah, I just think starting to, to grapple with that is is a big piece of this. Okay, well, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. You know, Dory, we talk to a lot of really fantastic, intelligent people on this podcast, but I don't know, maybe you're like us and you want to go even deeper. Mm, I'd love to go deeper. We like to go deep. And that's not only possible with today's sponsor, but also easy to accomplish on Masterclass. Every year I get really into the classes offered and the instructors offering them. Like I'm all over the place with the things that I like on Masterclass, but this year I am very interested in the class Redefining Feminism, which is 14 lessons from Gloria Steinem. Okay. Now they dissect issues 
women face in the U.S. and ways we can play a role in the feminist movement in our everyday lives. Look, I majored in women and gender studies in college. So this is right up my alley. But even if you didn't, even if you're like, this is the first time I'm hearing those words. I would argue, especially if you didn't. Yes. Get into it with Masterclass because this is the year you can really learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Go from just talking about improving to actually doing the things you've been wanting to do with Masterclass. And it doesn't have to be redefining feminism with Gloria Steinem. It can be gardening in your own garden or your yard or patio. It can be learning to cook Indian food or designing a space that you love. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors. So whether you want to master like negotiation with Chris Voss or Think Like a Boss with Martha Stewart or maybe capture your vision through photography with Petra Collins, Masterclass has you covered. With Masterclass, you get unlimited access to intimate one-on-one classes with the world's best. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash F35. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash F35. That's masterclass.com slash F35. You know, the weather's getting warmer. So I, for one, am ready to say goodbye to my jackets and my sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I'm right there with you, Kate. And you know what I actually... Actually, I donned double quince the other night. I've got to tell you. Okay. This is what's so great about quince because I feel like I have really been able to update my wardrobe like for the long haul without spending a fortune. I wore a gorgeous white tee, like a simple, perfect white cotton t-shirt from Mm. quince. But it was a little chilly out. So I threw on my cashmere hoodie also from Quince. Ooh, Mm -hmm. okay. Like they have basically given me a lineup of timeless pieces that I feel like keep me looking, I'm going to toot my own horn, effortlessly chic, whether it's winter or or summer. They've got premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from $30. You've got washable silk tops, really stunning 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. Like truly, the list goes on and on. And the best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes, something that's very important to us. So look, if you're going on a trip, if you just need to update your summer wardrobe, get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash forever35 for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash forever35 to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash forever35. Kate, I feel like we are like barreling into summer. It's happening so fast. It is. And I feel like also with summer just come more social events. There's weddings. There's nights out. It's vacations. I mean, like all the things happening in summer. And 
What I love is that Honey Love has just the right thing for all those events. Feel comfortable and confident this summer with Honey Love's best-selling Super Power Short. The Super Power Short smooth shapes and lifts, giving you a flawless silhouette under any outfit with targeted compression technology that distinguishes between areas where you want more support and areas you need less compression. It's designed to work with your body, not against it. Speaking of working with your bod, the crossover bra, which I'm wearing as we speak. I wear that thing every day. I do too. Uh, It's my favorite Honey Love piece. Let me me just tell you why. Yeah, get into it. Okay, do you want to tell me why? No, no, I was just (laughs) going to say like I... I, I don't even need to wear it to events. I wear it like the event is every day of my life. Yes, that's such a good way of putting it. The bra gives all the support of traditional bras without using any underwires. And just like sidebar, I have put on some of my old underwire bras lately and been like, oh, God, like get this off of me. No, thank <laughs> once you. you. Once you start wearing Honey Love, you're just like, no, not yep. going back. You see how it could be. Yes. Also, like summer sweat under those underwires is like, ugh, the worst. Now you don't have to worry about it. Get the support you need with the comfort you deserve and treat yourself to the best bras and shapewear on the market. Save 20% off at honeylove.com slash forever. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off honeylove.com slash forever. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them and please support our show and tell them we sent you. The summer vibes are just getting started. So shape your life with Honey Love. You know, one thing I think is really kind of interesting about skin, my skin, but all skin, is that like what it needs now in my 40s is not what I needed in my 30s. Totally. Definitely not what I needed in my 20s. But like, how are you supposed to know what your skin needs? It's hard. It's hard to know. Especially when there's just like so many products out there. The overwhelm is real. It's a struggle to even know how to get the results you want, what products to start with. This is why we're super excited to partner with Apostrophe. Apostrophe is a prescription skincare company that offers science-backed medications that are clinically proven to help. I have used Apostrophe. I love it. They will pair you with a board-certified dermatologist who literally creates a personalized treatment plan for your skin. I have done this a few times now. It is so easy to do their online consultation. You upload photos And like within a few weeks, I had done a consultation and received my treatment plan and my product. Amazing. And that is how I became a Tretinoin gal. I love the Tretinoin that they sent me. I love their sunscreen. Both products have been amazing on my skin. And you, Forever 35 listeners, can get a special deal from Apostrophe. You can get your first visit for only $5.00. That's at apostrophe.com slash forever35 when you use our code forever35. Now, that is a savings of $15. I like that. This code is only available to Forever 35 listeners. So to get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash forever35 and click get started. And then use our code forever35 at sign up and you will get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. Can we talk a little bit about how to talk to people about um, 
fat phobia and diet culture. And you have some very concrete advice in the book um, that I feel like I need to commit to memory. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering two things. One is if you have just sort of general suggestions for how to shut down conversations about weight. And then also on social media, um, you know, Kate referenced a parenting group where there have been some conversations. I'm in the same group and there have been some conversations that I would describe as fat phobic. And is it our job as people with thin privilege to call people in on that? And how do we do that? It's a tricky thing because you, it's so important in this conversation not to, you know, like we have to hate the game, not the player. Right. Because mm. we're all swimming in the same soup. Mm-hmm. We're all struggling with this in different ways. And especially if you're someone with some thin privilege and you're talking to someone in a bigger body, they've experienced the soup in a way that you haven't. So for you to be like, mm-hmm. that's so fat phobic is like not mm-hmm. always your place. So, and especially online, that can be hard to suss out, right? Totally. Um, the kind of levels of harm that people have experienced. So I always try to start with compassion for okay, this person is saying this harmful thing. They're maybe talking, you know, it's your friend talking about how she's intermittent fasting again and like, oh my God, so exhausting. But also like this is something that she is struggling with or they are struggling with for the same reasons we all struggle and like we can find some common ground there. So I always try to find ways to pivot it so it's not like I'm saying you shouldn't diet or, you know, like that's obviously not going to work. Right. But instead something like, oh, it's so exhausting how our culture makes us feel like this is necessary. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so frustrating that we keep getting these messages that our bodies aren't enough. And Mm -hmm. then it's like you're finding a point of commonality and you can sort of shift it away from let's trade diet trips and more into like, let's talk about the larger system. Um, And if that doesn't work, like if someone is just really stuck on wanting to talk about how great paleo is for the millionth time or whatever, I mean, you can set different boundaries depending on what the relationship is. Corinne, who works on Burnt Toast With Me, has this great line that she uses where She'll just go, it's so interesting how we keep talking about our diets. And I just kind of love that for just like a, mm. you know, just like dropping it out there. Like, it's so interesting how you mm-hmm. keep mentioning, you know, food. And like, you're not judging. You're just making mm-hmm. that kind of impartial observation. But you're also kind of letting it be known that this is not the conversation right. you most want to be having. And that can be a useful one, especially at like Thanksgiving dinner or something. Yeah, I'm thinking back to a couple of like specific interactions that I feel like I probably should have handled in a different way. Um, But you know, what I mean, no better, do better, (laughs) and you can't like swing at every pitch. You know what I mean? Like this is my work, and I don't pick up every opportunity. Like there's some sometimes you just don't have the bandwidth, or you can just tell it's not going to go well, and you have to sort of conserve your resources. Totally. Um, But yeah, but when there, but I will also say I think like folks within privilege. Looking like one thing I would love folks with thin privilege to think about doing is, and I know you guys talked about like not getting weighed at the doctor's office and how that's something we can opt out of. Um, but it also is something that only folks with thin privilege can opt out of. If you right. show up in a fat body, they can see your fat. So even if you don't get on the scale, medical weight bias is still going to be in play. So, you know, for those of us who are opting out of getting on the scale, 
it, you know, a way to take it further is to start to explain why you're doing that and say, mm. you know, I really think that we should be taking weight out of conversations in healthcare and explaining that piece of it. And so that's something else I talk about in the book is like how to start to kind of push the needle a little bit, because if you have the ability, clothes is another one. If you shop at a brand that's not offering plus sizes or not offering, you know, enough plus sizes, because there's a lot of like fake plus size stuff going mm -hmm. on. You know, even if you're a size six, I would love for you to say like, hey, I would shop here more if you were including all customers or if they add plus sizes, letting them know that's something you value. You mentioned um, the doctor's office. And one thing I'm, I'm really glad that you address in the book is this the kind of counter argument that's often presented of like, but what about health? Like, health as kind of like the way we talk about sugar and uh, mm -hmm. like health is often used as a retort or a justification. And it's, that's for me always a little bit of a gray area when we talk about this stuff. Um, how, how do you handle the ways in which, um, you know, health is the, this idea of quote unquote health is used to, I don't know if weaponize is the right word, but perhaps like justify or counter um, these conversations. I think weaponize is a great word, actually. Okay, okay good. Okay. Um, I mean, I think what about health is often a bit of a dog whistle, especially in online discourse, mm -hmm. because it's often followed up by really shaming judgmental statements like they should just hit the gym or, you know, mm. why can't you eat like I do? Or it's not hard to lose weight and all these sort of like really negative stereotype laden ways of thinking about fat people. So that's one piece of it is like, I completely understand that knee jerk of like, oh God, they got me with the what about health question. <laughs> but it's good to know that if you're talking to a man on the internet, he actually doesn't have you because it's almost <laughs> always backed up by nothing. Um, <laughs> if it's a doctor, it gets more complicated. But mm. the the Twitter trolls for sure are using that line without any any kind of backup. Um, what we really understand about the research on health and weight is that weight has much less to do with health than we've been told, and. We can see this in large epidemiological studies that show that people with higher BMIs actually tend to live longer than people with lower BMIs. There are certain health conditions where higher BMI is protective. Things like certain kinds of cancer, people recover better. Fat people get less osteoporosis, which is a huge issue, you know, as you get older. Um, fat people recover better from heart surgeries. And researchers call this the obesity paradox because the bias against fatness is so baked into the research that whenever they find a benefit to fatness, they just can't even believe it. So it must be this mm. paradox as opposed to like, oh, huh, maybe this whole weight thing's a lot more nuanced than we thought. So that's one part of it. Another thing to understand is all the research claiming to show that larger body size causes health problems is all correlation, not causation. So we do see these population trends where folks in bigger bodies have higher rates of the weight-linked health conditions, heart disease, high cholesterol, diabetes, things like that. But we don't have evidence showing that it's the actual body, the pounds on your body causing the health problems. Instead, we think it may be more likely that these are sort of two characteristics of these groups of people with these higher disease rates and that there may be a common explanation for both or they may just be like sort of two coexisting things. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes poor health 
or, you know, certain health conditions can increase weight, like PCOS is an example of one where it seems like folks with PCOS tend to gain weight in response to the way their hormones are working, but losing weight doesn't cure PCOS. So focusing just on weight is not going to resolve the underlying health issue. And that's the other piece of this is most of the time, even when we do see a more direct relationship between weight and health, and again, it's often not like weight equals health, but maybe it's health is influencing weight, maybe weight is contributing to health. In all of those scenarios, losing weight doesn't cure the health condition. Treating the health condition is what manages the health condition. And sometimes weight loss is a byproduct of that, and sometimes it's not. And so when we make weight the entire story, we risk really underserving people's health. Because if you say to people, I need you to lose weight, start exercising, and they start exercising and they don't lose weight, they're going to get frustrated and stop exercising. But we know that exercise benefits your health in a thousand different ways, even if you don't lose weight doing mm. it. So wouldn't it make so much more sense to say, hey, let's talk about exercise and like, you know, what would feel good for you and what's doable and how can I support you finding a workout routine that is fun and fits your lifestyle? And let's not even think about the weight piece of it because we know you'll reduce your stress, you'll sleep better, you know, all of your biomarkers will improve if we can get you more active. And it doesn't matter whether the scale changes. So that's the shift I'm talking about is let's talk about health if we care about health. Let's leave weight out of it. That's such a that's such an important and good distinction that I mean that I can just think of countless examples um, anecdotally that you know, people yeah. are just so personally too, in the past, um, Kate and I have talked about how our views on exercise have changed from, you know, trying to get like jacked or like, you know, to enjoying ourselves moving. And I, mm -hmm. there's that, um, person you taught the doctor in the book, Sarah, I think Sarah is her name who mm. like now has the weekly pickleball game yes. and, yes. and like, which Kate does. Um, and yeah, this is such an important like mental shift that I was not able to kind of get to until recently. Yeah, it's really, I mean, same, same, same exercise for me, even more than dieting was my like disordered space yeah. with all of this yeah. for years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I was in my twenties, I like, tried to be a runner and did all this running and really screwed up my feet and my knees. And, you know, now it would be very easy to go to this place of like, well, I'm fat and that must be why I have knee pain. And I just look back on my 20s and I'm like, no, I know why I have knee pain. And it was right. like, right. you know, obsessive running, right. my thinnest, that left me with like decades worth of knee issues to work out. And weight loss is not going to fix it because it'll only put me back in that super disordered place. So yeah, yeah, I mean, figuring out yeah. different ways to move has been has been really life changing, and yeah, and now it's like this joyful thing I look forward to and that I crave, as opposed to this like thing that I was always dreading yes. and putting off and yes. feeling shame about. Yeah. Yes, um, we you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about your work in women's magazines um, because you you have written about how, you know, you feel like you were complicit in perpetuating diet culture. And I was just wondering if you could expand a little bit more on 
what you experienced and especially like internalized from your time there. And also if you have thoughts on like where women's media, and I know this is a big question, but like where, where women's media is today, because it does seem like in a lot of ways, we are not in the same place that we were in 2005. Right. But at the same time, it does also seem like there's still a lot of harmful stuff. Um, And maybe it's just not as explicit as it was in 2005, but like it's still there. Yeah, I think we're in like a messy middle space for sure. Mm -hmm. I definitely, I mean, look, when I was writing primarily for women's magazines, like that made up the bulk of my work. Um, You know, I managed to write a piece about health at every size for Marie Claire back in like 2009 or something. Um, But it was a huge uphill battle. I remember it was like pitch meeting after pitch meeting in order to convince them that this was like a worthwhile conversation. And I looked back at the piece recently and the woman who was the lead source in the story, I don't usually use numbers to talk about weight. So trigger warning for anyone who doesn't want to hear a number, but I will use it because it just illustrates where we were. This was this woman who we were supposed to be celebrating for embracing her fat body and she weighed 160 pounds, which is not a fat body by any measurement. <laughs> um, and Marie Claire was like, we are so brave. We are so we are putting this on. She is like a size eight and we are putting her in the magazine. Oh my God. Maybe she was a size 10. I don't know. But like, so again, apologies for all those numbers, but just to show you like, and I thought I was like being a real hero, you know, I was like, wow, yeah. we are, yeah. this source is so brave to share her weight. First of all, now I would never even include a source's weight in the story. Like, you know, that would just feel wrong in a lot of ways. And I mean, and she was awesome and good for her. And like, I want every 160 pound person to feel good about their body. But like, that was not, that is not the person being the most harmed by diet culture or anti-fat bias at all. And the fact that, that there is so much harm for that person like just speaks to how screwed up the whole situation was. Um, Yeah. So definitely very complicit, even when I thought I was really pushing the envelope. I mean, another example is I was sure, I remember when my older daughter was about two, so this would have been like 2015. And I was like, really sure I'd totally broken up with dieting. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm like totally past all of that. I don't, you know, I think I was already working on the eating instinct. And I did a story for Self Magazine investigating detox diets where I went on a detox diet. Like, let's mm-hmm. not really investigate this. <laughs> just like doing right. the detox diet, right. you know? Mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, but I'm like really digging into the science of it while I've cut out like eight food groups. Like, just, you know, so we were where we were. Um, and I think it's just, I, I don't mind talking about it because I want to like, be clear, like I know I have been part of this harm and all I can do is sort of take responsibility for it um, and do better. But uh, yeah, I am glad to have done the learning and to still be doing the learning that I'm doing. Um, In terms of where women's media is now, I mean, for one thing, it's such a smaller market, right? I mean, I was in women's magazines like in the heyday when there was like 18 magazines and like five bridal magazines. Like, you know, there were like categories of women's media, like six fitness titles. Yes. And now there's like none and they're all online only. So, you know, the whole industry has shifted so dramatically. And obviously that's been bad in terms of like job security for anyone who was working in women's media. Mm-hmm. Um, but the upside of it, or maybe a silver lining, is that I think it loosened the reins a little bit between the advertisers and 
the magazine and editorial. And, you know, like self is a great example. Like I did that detox story back when self was still a print magazine and so, 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 so diety. And when self went online only, it got this great new editor in chief. They've done some like, you know, they were publishing Aubrey Gordon when she was still using her pseudonym, like Jessica Jones, like they're doing great, really progressive, really innovative content about these Mm -hmm. issues. So that's been very cool to see. I mean, I think the relationship with advertising is still there for sure. Yeah. I don't, I don't think we've dealt, you know, we've resolved that. And I think it's more complicated now with obviously the rise of the influencer and that whole relationship is, you know, that's sort of like the new women's magazines in a way. Mm-hmm. I, I really love, um, I mean, I, lo- I, I love the focus on parenting and in, in of your book, but I really appreciated that you talk about dads and diet culture. Um, because I do feel like this is not a conversation yeah. that is happening enough. And, I thought your analysis of like the performance of male dieting was fascinating. And I just wanted to kind of dig into this a little bit because as you note, like this kind of um, the male diet is often presented under the form of like optimizing performance or like biohacking, like Mm -hmm. Jack Dorsey from Twitter and like the recent news story of Chris Martin only eating one meal a day because that's what Bruce Springsteen does. God. Uh, yes. Yeah. And and just even the fact that that is referred to as a diet is, and not just like a starvation plan. I mean, it's just right, all right, of right. it is, it's just uh, like such a part of our cultural conversation that we don't even sometimes blink an eye when we read these headlines. Um, so what, what do you see as the role of dads? And I think when we we're talking about dads, we're talking about white, more specifically mm-hmm. white men. Yeah. Um, straight white men. Yeah. Yes. For sure. uh, what is kind of the culture there of dads and diet culture? Um, and do you have any thoughts on trying to shift this conversation? Because I feel like so much we're talking about like women and diet culture and fat phobia, mm-hmm. and then you have this conversation happening beside it. And it seems to be called in less. And that just might much be... less. No. It it, is okay. Less. okay. Yeah. I mean, I am waiting for the male me to run with this, basically, yeah. you know, like, I am waiting for the like, guy journalist who wants to really like do this work, because we do not have it yet. Um, and, uh, and specifically do it like talking to fathers. Um, we don't have that. And it's so needed. I mean, what's interesting about male diet culture, number one, they don't think they have diet culture, right? They think they have um, all this like sort of science based, like intermittent fasting is so research based and the, you know, or they're doing the Michael Pollan, the Mark Bittman thing of like, this is for the environment and climate change. Um, they have a lot of justifications for what they're doing and they're given a gravitas for it, right? Like we don't question men around food and exercise decisions. We don't look at the dad doing his like, you know, four hour marathon training run on Saturday while mom's stuck with the kids. We're not like, like, oh, is this a healthy relationship with exercise we have? We were like, oh, he's doing his training runs. He's going to do an Ironman. Good for him. This is like what he and his buddies do. Like we don't unpack that in terms of his relationship with his body. We might be annoyed that he's like tapping out on childcare for the fifth weekend in a row, but we're not like, huh, what's, what's going on? Is that a little obsessive? Like we don't do it. Whereas when women exercise that way, it gets scrutinized, you know, it gets picked apart. And that's because we assume women are emotional about food and bodies. And we assume men are like dispassionate and clinical and like just, you know, doing this because it's like 
part of their sort of male identity in a way that just drives me nuts because we know that men are just as screwed up about their bodies. We know that they are insecure about it. Like, you know, the research shows like men struggle with these issues in the same ways women do. The difference is men have a more generous range of like the body standards for men are more flexible than they are for women. Um, and it's like they are both the the oppressed and the oppressor at the same time. Women's beauty ideals are about pleasing men. Men's beauty ideals are about pleasing men. So they're about pleasing themselves. So it's like a little more it's and it's not I want to be clear like men can really suffer and and men are, you know, we are really underdiagnosing men with eating disorders. Men are much likely much more likely not to have it get flagged. A doctor is not even going to ask those questions. So again, the weekend warrior stuff, the, you know, oh, you're, you can't go to bed until you close your rings on your Apple watch. Like nobody's going to be like, oh, that's, that's a little intense. Like they're going to be like, good for you being so healthy. Um, and that does men a real disservice because they may be really, really struggling and no one's giving them a language. We don't have a script for how they talk about that. But then it also does this extra disservice to the women in their lives, to the kids in their lives, because their family is carrying the burden of their struggle and being impacted by their struggle that nobody is naming and nobody is talking about or even identifying as a problem. One chapter that really rocked me personally, based on my own lived experiences, was talking about American youth sports culture and thinness. Um, and I have just spent a lot of time reflecting the ways in which growing up in a community that that really valued sports for their mm-hmm. kids above anything else has has impacted me for my whole life, especially as a person who who did not play sports. Oh, so um, you didn't play sports, even though you lived in a really sporty place. I lived in an incredibly sporty place. That was the barometer for like success, for Oof. popularity, for everything, and that was not. I mean, like that was not my thing. And yeah. as an adult, I've come to sports um, and really enjoyed myself and felt a lot of sorrow that I never got to have that experience yeah. as a kid. Listen, again, you're not my therapist, but no, no. I am can- interested in like how diet culture is such a part of the of youth sports, like mm-hmm. not just us as adults and fitness, but the ways in which our culture values and pushes this kind of really ultra competitive sports culture and what it and the way in which i think for parents it reflects like how what we think of the reflection of that on us yeah well it's you know it's like the entire model for youth sports and i think this was true when we were growing up too but it's really even intensified more is predicated on this idea that like every child might be michael phelps or simone biles or you know insert any other elite athlete here and so What that means is instead of these being opportunities for kids to play and have fun and like, yeah, it's competitive, but in like a team building sense, instead, it's all about like coaching these kids to be their best selves as athletes. And that means they're applying these really narrow definitions of who gets to be an athlete. And they're all rooted in body size, right? Every sport you can think of, you think of like, well, that's a runner's body. That's a dancer's body. That's a you know, that's a basketball player's body. Like there are all these physical characteristics that we assume are necessary, are prerequisites for excellence in the sports. And just the fact that we prize excellence in youth sports to the degree we do is really problematic. And so, yeah, that means that anyone who doesn't have that body 
is just like a non-starter, literally. And so when you think about the stereotype of like fat kids are so lazy, it's like, well, are they lazy or are they not literally invited onto the teams? Do they not even have jerseys in their size? You know, is there no, Mm. the coach is so focused on winning and on like which athletes are going to get them the results they need. They're not thinking about like, how do I make every kid who wants to play this sport feel like they're a part of the team, feel like they belong here. And not just like, uh, oh, sure, Timmy, you can play too. But like truly like, you are a valuable member of this team. Like, we want you here. We have built this to include kids of all body sizes and kids of all abilities. And so that's, and it's a lot to do with, I mean, it's capitalism. It's a lot to do with how for profit most of the youth sports are now. Folks are making a ton of money off this. Parents are spending a ton of money on it. So they want to see certain results. And it really does kids a disservice. And I, you know, I draw a pretty direct line from, that kind of anti-fat bias in the way kids' sports are set up early on to the kinds of abuse of power we see, you know, and then you mm-hmm. see that at the elite levels. You see that in, you know, women's soccer, gymnastics, et cetera, et cetera. Like these kids have grown up thinking their bodies belong to their coaches, not to them. And mm. like, what a terrifying message to teach kids. Like what, <laughs> like truly, truly destructive. So I feel you because I also grew up in a sporty town and was completely unathletic and just <laughs> felt like I was watching me. all the popular kids being like, what is happening? I don't yeah. don't want, don't make me run. I don't want to run. So, yeah. So we're just going to take a short break and we will be right back. You know, we have been delving more and more into the topic of our skin as we get older and how we treat it, and how we love it. Because look, as I'm learning in my mid-40s, as you get older, you deal with new things when it comes to your skin. Not that they're bad, they're just new. You know what I mean? Like I am now just discovering crappiness, Dory. Mm, okay. Which is okay, I visible know. on my <sighs> neck and chest. Luckily, it's a thing. It's a thing. Luckily, OneSkin, our sponsor today, knows all about things like crappiness. And I'm not overly concerned with aesthetics, but like I do just want to keep my skin healthy as I age. Totally. I love their topical supplements. They really help your skin feel, I don't want to say younger, but just vibrant, Mm. refreshed, They combine tissue engineering, data analysis, and cutting-edge longevity science to literally create the world's most effective product to help with skin aging. I am particularly fond of their face topical supplement. It's essentially a moisturizer, but it has their Mm -hmm. proprietary OSO1 peptide to really help with all the parts of our skin that are exposed to environmental damage. You can use it on your face, your hands, your neck. I know here Mm -hmm. where we live in Los Angeles, our hands, we're driving. That sun is coming at us at all times. OneSkin believes the purpose of skincare is not just to improve how we look, but to optimize our skin biology so that it is more resilient to the aging process. They really create next level skincare. One Skin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, One Skin keeps your skin looking and more importantly, acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code OVER50 
at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code OVER50. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them and please support our show and tell them we sent you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I have a question that is like maybe a sort of, again, selfish one, but <laughs> it's not. That I have the same some question. Some people Dory. can relate to this because one place that I personally get tripped up and Virginia, again, we know you're not our therapist, but I am hoping you can help me kind of like unpack this. Um, no pressure is the idea of not labeling foods like good or bad, which I'm on board with. We don't do that in our house. But like, are there foods that are just not as, quote, good for you? And how do we thread that needle? And, you know, I think I'm also going to like insert my acknowledgement of privilege here. But if like I'm in a grocery store, I will probably buy wheat bread with a few ingredients and not Wonder Bread because mm -hmm. I don't want to eat super processed white bread. But is that also playing into diet culture? Um, and is there a way to be, quote, healthy without also perpetuating fat phobia and diet culture? This is a really good question. Um, I think fundamentally what I want us to do is reframe how we think about food and feeding kids away from nutrition and think of food and feeding kids as an opportunity to teach body autonomy. Mm. And if that is your reframe, so if you can put nutrition aside, which, and I'll get back to the nutrition piece of it, because I know that's like a big ask to be like, just stop worrying about nutrition. But if you can say my goal at family dinners or getting breakfast into my children before they get on the bus or whatever, you know, all the times you're feeding your kids, my goal is for my kids to come away from this meal feeling like they could feed themselves. They felt nourished. They felt they leave the table satisfied. And we had maybe some moments, not all the moments because parenting is hard, but some moments of like connection and, you know, they felt loved and seen and like I trusted their bodies and they could trust mm -hmm. their bodies. Mm -hmm. If that is your real goal for family meals, which I would argue is the more important goal, then which type of bread you're buying, whether they ate any broccoli, whether they only wanted chocolate ice cream for dinner, which happened at my house last night, like all of these questions are kind of moot because you're, you're already winning, right? If you're able to say like, my kid got fed, they left the table satisfied and they got to trust their body. Great. A plus. And that just like takes a lot of the pressure off. Um, and I would argue going back to what we we're just talking about with youth sports, it's such a fundamental lesson for parenting. It's such a fundamental gift to give to our kids that's going to help them withstand diet culture and anti-fat bias. It's going to help them stand up to that co coach that wants to bully them. It's going to help them in dating scenarios when like someone offers them drugs, like all the things mm -hmm. that we worry about as parents, right? If my kid is like, my needs matter, my preferences matter, mm -hmm. I get to listen to my body. Mm -hmm. And they learned that at our family dinner tables over the years. Like that's a really useful and health promoting foundation. So 
That is why I argue that matters more than nutrition. They have their whole lives to try out whole grains or kale or any of these things. But we have only so many years in which to try to instill this sense of like, you can trust yourself first because the world is trying to take that away from them all Mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. So that's my big picture thing. Now, okay, what are you doing in the grocery store with the bread? It's really your call, right? Like if you have the privilege and you think that whole grain bread tastes better than Wonder Bread, then buy the whole grain bread. It's not that there's something wrong with choosing that bread. But if part of you is like, actually, I really loved Wonder Bread when I was a kid. And maybe my kid would love Wonder Bread. And my kid is like really picky and it's hard to find a bread that they'll like. And probably Wonder Bread would be that bread, but I'm not going to let myself buy it because I think it's a bad food. Well, that is where I would say, like, let's, mm-hmm. let's like let ourselves off, like mm-hmm. all of those hooks. So it's really like, if it's truly just your personal preference, great. You should eat the foods you like. You don't have to like eat a food. You know, I don't like flaming hot Cheetos. I'm not going to eat flaming hot Cheetos. Right. But I do <laughs> love extra toasty Cheez-Its and I will eat them every day. So, you know, like you're allowed to have preferences, but it's like you should unpack what is it that's making you choose that mm-hmm. food. And if it's some kind of like virtue signaling or punitive thing or feeling like you're failing as a mom, if you buy the other thing, and if it's making your life harder to buy mm. that, and I'm speaking as someone who feeds two very cautious eaters still. So we have a lot of processed foods in our house because cautious eaters do really well with processed foods because they're predictable mm-hmm. yeah. and they always taste the same and they mm-hmm. can, you know, they can leave the table knowing they got fed. And that mm-hmm. is so important to me. Yeah. So, that's such an important point that yeah. um, I've heard other parents make recently that I hadn't really thought about. And I, I just, it's really resonated. Yeah. I mean, I, yes. Do I do backflips when they add a new food to the repertoire? Of course, it's very exciting. It makes cooking dinner easier. If we could like all agree on like more than three foods, <laughs> it'd be so nice. <laughs> um, but we are where we are. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Like frozen burritos are getting me through a lot right now. And that's like really grateful to them. Um, and yeah. And I mean, I think one of the lines in the book that just I come back to all the time was the dietitian who said the most important thing about nutrition is getting kids enough to eat. Yeah, and if yeah. your kids are getting enough, like enough calories to grow and thrive, the minutia of nutrition is going to work itself out. Yes. I love that. Um, and I, I was just like, okay, I'm putting that on my fridge. Yeah, Take, right. Yeah. I say that to me and myself every night at dinner. Right. Like, like you said, like, let's keep kind of the big picture in mind. Yeah. Then that's what let me say, okay, then body autonomy is where I yes. keep my focus. Because I know I'm letting them get enough food. Right. Right. Now I can work on the other thing. Um, okay. I have one last question. And Kate, but Kate, if you have another one, please no, no, jump no. in. But I'm, I'm ready for this one. Okay. Um, I really liked your example in the book of how to approach like not having your kid's birthday party at a paintball place because they don't have gear that fits all of the kids. Um, and you talk about the ways in which the world is just like not set up for fat people. Um, what would be some ways that the physical world could be more fat inclusive? Chairs is a huge one. Um, restaurants that like cram all the tables really close together and the chairs have arms. And so it's difficult for folks to literally fit in the space. Booths that are like not, you know, just built spaces are a big one. Airplanes, I think, go without saying. Yes. Um, you know, I mean, even like here, I thought I've like done all this work and done all this learning. And a friend of mine came over and was like, your dining room chairs are not comfortable for me. And I was like, thank you for that note. Okay, good to know. Like they have arms and they dig into her after a while. And, mm. um, you know, that 
was just something that I hadn't really dealt with. And now we have two armless chairs that I can pull out for anyone who needs them. And that was a pretty easy upgrade to make. Right. Costs, you know, like I sacrificed nothing. And now I feel like I can welcome people into my home. So it's like, like taking that moment to like evaluate if you're hosting a party, if you're having people stay, you know, Will they be comfortable? Is this accessible to them? Um, and definitely, yeah, like if you are coaching a soccer team, what size do the jerseys come in? You know, if you're a dance teacher, if you're, you know, anything with kids, thinking a little more broadly about like, how do we make this an inclusive activity for all abilities? It just, it goes such a long way. And it's a great thing to be modeling for our, our thin kids as well. Our fat kids yeah. deserve this, right? Our fat yeah. kids deserve to feel safe and welcome in these spaces. But our thin kids need this too, because we need them to not be fat phobic. And, you know, I was a thin kid who's a fat adult. Like, they may mm-hmm. not always be thin. And so you don't want them to think that their worth is hinged on maintaining that thinness, because that is not guaranteed. Oh, well, Virginia, I mean, I guess we will let you go because oh, I guess presumably you have other things to do today. Although I guess like I would like to talk to you for, I don't know, three more hours. Um, thank you so much for this. Such an amazing conversation. And your book is so wonderful. And yeah. I would also like to encourage people who do not have children to yes. buy your book as well, because yes, I think story. there's so much to be learned from your book. That is not just about being a parent. Um, so I just want to like put in that plug as well. <laughs> Thank you. Amen. Amen. I do like to say it's like parenting writing for people who don't have kids. Like it's. Yeah. <laughs> well, we um, were all kids, right? And there's right. a lot there that I think a lot of people could unpack. Yeah. Um, yes. And many and many folks are reparenting themselves. Yes. So exactly. this yes. is exactly. very helpful. Um, Virginia, where can our listeners find you? So Tonight on the 26th, since that's when we're listening, I am doing a virtual event with Christy Harrison to celebrate her new book and my new book. Her book is The Wellness Trap. And we're doing that with Women and Children's First, which is an independent bookstore in Chicago. And then I have a few more events coming up. RJ Julia's in Connecticut on May 9th and the Museum of Science in Boston on May 10th. So those are book tour opportunities to come out and say hi. You can get Fat Talk anywhere you buy books or audiobooks or ebooks. You can subscribe to my newsletter, Burnt Toast, at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. You can get the Burnt Toast podcast wherever you are listening to this podcast. And you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at the underscore soulsmith. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This was awesome. I mean, look, we talk uh, we talk to a lot of really great people. Yeah, it's like the biggest privilege of doing this podcast. Yeah. But that definitely was one where I was like, I could I could just keep talking to you for a few more hours. Yeah, because I think it's it's a it's a topic that we are constantly evaluating both for ourselves as individuals, as friends, spouses, parents, like it, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. impact mm-hmm. of diet culture both like societally and on us as individuals and the way it impacts our relationships and how we move through the world is so intense yes and something that i feel like i just have kind of scratched the surface in my understanding and is a space where i really i do want to try to do 
the best for my kids that I can, knowing full well that I will make mistakes and yes. have made plenty yes. already. So many. And that's really important to remember. Yes, I think there's 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 always this feeling and it's not just with parenting, but with any of this stuff, when we're trying to get something right, where it means a lot to us, mm-hmm. and we're trying to be so intentional, this feeling, this worry that we can't mess up. Yeah. That if we mess up, it means we've done it wrong or done a bad job. I mean, this is something I've struggled with in all aspects of my life since I was, um, I would say, a day old. And I was like, I fucked up coming out of the womb. <laughs> I did it wrong. They're mad at me. <laughs> Uh, but I just think, you know, that can oftentimes like get us in our head when yes, really it's totally understanding that that's the process with any of these things. Um, yeah, yeah, I really, I just, if you don't subscribe to burnt toast, and, you really need to, yeah. And please check out this book. It's really, it's been great. And I think it's a, the kind of book I recommended it to one of my bestie group chats with folks that are parents and not parents. And I thought, I said, I think this would be mm. important for anybody to read. On that note, let's set some intentions. Let's do it. Kate, did you travel smartly and light? <gasps> I did. <gasps> oh my God, I did a really good job. I'm not going to lie. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy for you. So when I travel with a carry-on, I often will have the suitcase and then I have like the biggest legal-sized backpack I can possibly have that will fit under a chair, under the seat in front of me. And instead, I just brought a purse. Now I still fit an iPad in, like I still crammed it full of stuff, but I had to really cut back. So you had the suitcase and the purse. Yeah. I love that. That was big for me. Was my suitcase like brimming? I got to say, away suitcases, I can shove so much stuff. You really can get a lot in there. Their larger sized carry-on suitcase, that thing is like... Yeah, that's become my go-to. It's a lifesaver. Yeah. My child right now just stole it to take on a one night school field trip. I was like, how dare you? Wow. Um, but that thing is great. Like, yeah. I, I was like sitting there and I was like, I am like advertiser or not. I love this. Totally. I love the suitcase. So that suitcase really got me through life. Um, and, and also my CalPAC toiletry kit, which you just busted out in front of me today. That thing is a real workhorse. I was really influenced between you and Caroline from G Thanks. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. there's just a lot of fans of that cosmetics. What's it called? Organizer. Cosmetics organizer. Yes, the smaller size. The smaller size that, you know, I respect their opinions. Well, it's the kind of thing that you bulk at because the price tag is yes. so high. But then you realize totally. it's it works and it lasts. Like yes. it's really durable. Okay. Anyway, I could go on and on, but I did travel well. I had a great time in Seattle. Beautiful city. Fish so was glad. amazing. This week, I'm seeing more fish shows. So... And this weekend, Jory, I'm seeing fish every night, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Mm-hmm. And then during the day, I'm appearing on both Saturday and Sunday at the LA Times Festival of Books. You have quite a weekend. It's a really intense weekend with two of my most favorite things in the world. Now, are you going to these shows alone? You're going with friends? What I'm are you going doing? With, I'm going with friends. I have like a variety of or friends. You're going with 15,000 of your closest friends. <laughs> and four of my absolute best friends on stage. <laughs> there are, I have like a friend who I think I'm sitting with who's got me a ticket with her and some of her friends. 
um, I have friends who are going one night who I'm going to try to meet up with. I have a friend who I see a bunch of shows with and he and he and I are sitting separately, but we'll go together. Like it's going to be, I think because it's in Los Angeles, it'll be really nice. I'll probably know a yeah, lot of people. Totally. It'll be really fun. It'll be like my home turf and I'll kind of be like obnoxious. Like you guys are in my living room. <laughs> um, but, and then during the day I get to just talk romance books and see so many of my favorite writers and authors and people I've be- like lucky enough to become friends with and people I'm fans of. So if you're at either of those things, I hope I see you. Oh, so my point is I have to take it easy. Mm. I have to, because I have to be at, I'm going to get fish to like midnight, one in the morning and oh waking up and, and then, I want to be fresh right. to talk about books. Oh my gosh. I'm not drinking any alcohol. I am hydrating. I'm liquid IVing. I'm good, wearing good. my most comfortable sneakers. I am sleeping as much as I can. Great. And I'm taking it easy. I'm really happy to hear that. That's my plan. Okay. How about you? You had clothes on a chair. Okay. So I have made a very large dent in the clothes on the chair. Oh my gosh. You sent me a photo of your closet with, with just like well, hangers. Hey, I have to say, you issued a challenge to me. Go on. Well, I was telling, I don't think this was on the pod. I believe this was on text. I don't remember actually where I said I was, I wanted to get rid of a lot of stuff and you were like, okay, but you can't just like replace it. (gasps) I did say that. Yeah. I was like, don't buy anything new. And I was like, I know that. And, but, but then I was also like, "Mm, well, I, I, you know, I have bought a few new things, but certainly nothing approaching what I've gotten rid of. I think. But then I was like, let me see. And I went through my closet and I found all the empty hangers, which my, I used to have no empty hangers in my closet. Like I was at the point where things weren't getting hung up because I didn't have enough hangers. You were in the overflow. I was in the overflow zone. Now I have, I don't know, 20 hangers. Whoa. Something like that. Like it's, it's noticeable. It's substantial. It feels great. Oh, and everything that was on the chair, the clothes on the chair, okay, are they still not there? Everything has been disposed of, but I have sold a lot of stuff. And, you know, it's funny because there's some stuff that has been on the chair for a few weeks that I've tried to sell in various places. And I was finally like, mm, maybe just no one's going to buy this. And then people bought it this weekend. So I was kind of like, okay, like I'm just going to give everything like another real other shot. Also, can I put in a plug for something that of I'm course. doing? Yeah, of course. So in my newsletter, now we're talking, I am writing a fashion advice column for people who feel like they've either like reached a certain age where they don't know how to dress or they've had life changes, like maybe pregnancy or what have you, or post pandemic. Um, and I'm writing an advice column for them, for those I, people. This is uh, your calling. If I thank you. Do so, say so myself. We're recording this a few days ahead of time, but by the time this airs, the first column will have been published and you can read it at dory.substack.com. I can't wait to read it. Thank you. You are a good stylist. Oh, well, thank you. You're a good like, um, like closet cleaner outer. And you're also good at being like this with this, put this together. Like this would work for your needs. Thank you. And I will say as a little preview, I came up with a few 
just sort of like general guidelines that I'm trying to abide by. Okay. I like that. When it comes to fashion and clothes and buying clothes and all that stuff. So if you know, if you are interested in that topic, toodaloo on over, as we like to say. I am interested and I'm a subscriber. So yes, you are. Um, now this week, this Sunday, I mean, this will have already happened when this airs, but this coming Sunday for when we were recording this is Henry's birthday party. Mm. He is turning four, which is very old. And I am a little like, what have I done for the birthday party? Because like we invited his whole class because like, He's in preschool. That's just kind of what you do. Yeah, I think that's nice. It's at a park. Okay, perfect. So there's 24 kids invited. Most of... Well, and then there's a few others who don't go to his preschool who are invited. Most people have RSVP'd, yes. I know there will be drop-off, like day of, or there's already been a couple of people who have been like, oh, I actually can't make it. But like so many people who have RSVP'd are like bringing siblings, which is great. Like I want it to be inclusive, but I'm now looking at the invite and it's like... 36 children have already uh-huh. received and I'm like oh god what have I done so I'm sure it will be fine it I'm will. sure it will be fun I'm just a little bit at the stage right now at this precise moment where I'm like uh-huh. like how many pizzas do I need to get exactly how many like you know and I'm always like oh I don't need to do goodie bags but then I kind of feel like Henry loves goodie bags and I just like I'm like, oh, okay, I'll just do good. But I don't know how many goodie bags to make. Just get a bunch of bubble wands. Okay. Tie a bow on each one, hand them out. Is that a thing I should just do? Sure. Okay. Just get a bucket, fill them with bubble wands. Mm-hmm. You could tie a little, like you could even tie a little bow and put a little something in the ribbon, like tie a little ribbon on it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Bubble wands are easy too because then they can start playing with them at the park. That's interesting. I All mean, right. I'll every take- kid normally just dumps out the bubble wand yes, by the that's end. Yes, but- that's what Henry does. Which is the best part about the bubble wand, honestly. And then he gets sad. I know. I mean, goodie bags, It's tr- that's tricky. It's tricky. And I know everyone's always like, oh, so much plastic crap. But I, I, I will tell you, Henry gets, like, weirdly gets so much delight out of a goodie bag at a birthday party. I love it. That I'm like, well, I guess I should just do birthday parties. My 10-year-old, my 10-year-old daughter just did goodie bags for her four-person sleepover that she had. So, Aww. yeah, I get it. I love that. Um, anyway, so that's my intention for this week. It's not really an intention, but I, I just, I'm just trying to like be a little bit calm. Like I don't want to get, I don't want to get how I get sometimes before events or like, just like so stressed out. Yeah, I get that. Um, so I'm trying, I'm also trying to like delegate some stuff and <sighs> it'll be fine. It'll be great. Okay. Forever 35 is hosted and produced by me, Dori Shafrir and you, Kate Spencer. Mm-hmm. Produced and edited by Sam Junio. Sammy Reed is our project manager, our network partners, Acast. We will talk to you all again so soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.